broadcasting from a 1998 Airstream somewhere in Oregon. This is the Campus Reach Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 16, The Crucifixion. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Preacher Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. And I believe we have a new webpage up, flfnetwork.com. You can go there and check out the goodies that we have going on, um, some teachings from Toby on Proverbs, some teaching from Gary DeMar on eschatology, uh, which basically deals with the last things. And to give you a hint, he's a preterist and a post-millennialist. To give you an idea of kind of broadly speaking where this network is coming from, what we're seeking to do is help rebuild culture. Uh, doesn't take too long to realize that things are disintegrating around you, and we have a couple different options. We can either be Christians that retreat, try to save a few souls and get out of here, or we can exercise dominion like Adam was called to do, and that's what we believe that we are called to do in the last Adam, who through his death, burial, resurrection, has now ascended to the right hand of God the Father, having all authority under heaven and earth, and we are to teach the nations to observe all things he's commanded commanded us. So not only are we uh, seeking to save souls, we're also looking to build up the saints and eventually to uh, help rebuild culture and civilizations and the arts and music and everything that entails. And as different parts of the body, we all have different responsibilities uh, in doing those things. So head on over to flfnetwork.com, check out what we have going on there, become a club member and uh, help our little uh, fledgling network grow. Fledgling, I believe, just means new, Uh, hopefully not tired or week or something like that, fledgling, our fledgling network. So uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, This episode, we're going to look at uh, just kind of briefly, historically, why we believe uh, Jesus Christ was crucified, um, that we have reasons internal to the Bible as well as external to the Bible uh, to believe that. And the trajectory of where we've been going with this apologetic is is a bit more less philosophical and a bit more historical in the sense that a few weeks ago we looked at evangelism to the Jews, and that's kind of tied into the historical aspect of what's going on with Daniel, that Daniel chapter 2 predicted that the Messiah would come during the time of the Roman Empire, Daniel 2, Daniel chapter 7, and then as well as, well as Daniel 9 speaks of the prince being cut off, which is intertwined uh, with tonight's episode on the crucifixion. So we believe that it was foreshadowed or prophesied about in the Old Testament, as well as foreshadowed. So we're going to get into the aspect of the crucifixion and why, historically, as we're interacting with people, uh, we can lay, out, lay forth some uh, basic facts uh, regarding the history of Jesus, uh, the death of Jesus, and then the witnesses to an alleged resurrection. And as we seek to reconstruct the scene, um, historically speaking, what makes the most sense. Um, and so, and, and part of the reason for that is I'm, I'm broadly sympathetic to the presuppositional apologetics, um, but in my interactions with kids on campus, you have two things going on. And what I'm going to say right now ties in with a question I received. A question I received um, was basically intertwined. If, if you're going to an abortion clinic or you're even out on campus evangelizing or you're in an evangelistic context, um, should we seek to somewhat downplay, say, the antithesis between us and the believer? Um, should we not just quote Bible verses? Should we quote Bible verses? What, what should we do? And you have a couple different things going on, and depending on who you are and what you're persuaded of um, is, is going to influence how you end up looking at it. And so I understand that, and I understand those who think, nope, we can't uh, forsake any of our authority in the Bible. If we do, we've compromised, and et cetera, et cetera. And a few weeks ago, um, what's that gentleman's name? Matt Walsh made some comments about that, and then uh, CrossPolitik responded, and I believe there's been a couple other public responses. And um, to be honest with you, I haven't really followed Matt Walsh that closely, so I can't speak too intelligently to his specific objections. But one of the things we want to look at, so if you've ever listened to presuppositional apologetics, at some point 
someone's wanting to make the distinction between proof and persuasion. And so, yes, we've offered up a 100% valid proof. Whether or not that persuades you or not is a different issue uh, than whether or not we've offered up proof. Um, so, in theory, obviously, I agree that's 100% accurate. We can offer up a proof to somebody. Whether or not an individual is persuaded of that is separate from the issue of whether or not the proof is valid. So, but within that, nonetheless, we, I believe, to some extent, have a duty and obligation to persuade others. Uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. And then I think it was King Agrippa asked Paul, Do you hope that I become a Christian like you? And he basically says, Long or short, I'd love to persuade all men to be as I am without these change. And so I do think there's an aspect of our Christian faith and our evangelism that needs to look into the aspect of persuasion. And oftentimes when we want to be hardcore, say Calvinists or hardcore fundamentalists in some regard, we want to downplay the aspect of persuasion. And you know, we have some reasons to believe that, uh, total depravity. And unless the spirit obviously convicts and converts a heart, um, they will not be converted. And so you know, we don't want to put our hope in our persuasive speech. And even the apostle Paul says, when I came to you, I had not come to you with wise words, but with fear and trembling. And so, you know, we kind of have, to some extent, a biblical basis um, for maybe downplaying aspects of persuasion. But I do believe that when Paul goes to Athens and he preaches to them, I don't think in any way, shape, or form he set aside the Christian worldview or, you know, the Jewish worldview uh, as, as he'd be working it through at that point. But I do think he was seeking to, to some extent, persuade those who were there. And there's a lot of issues uh, to get into when we get into that. I think we often misunderstand that passage. But Paul shows up on the scene, and everything he's saying is biblical, but he's not just out there quoting Bible verses. And he does end up preaching uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when I think of the issue of me evangelizing on campus, or if you're going to go to an abortion clinic, or if you're going to do evangelism, obviously there's a very clear sense which you don't set aside the Bible. Obviously, if you're evangelizing, you're speaking about the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, but how you go about that, I would say there's a lot of leeway. And sometimes when I'm talking to people, I believe I can impart, obviously, getting to the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I'm bringing in the Bible at that point. Um, but I can sit down and look at some of the lyrics of Bob Dylan, preach total depravity from Bob Dylan. And so when Paul's in Athens and he's quoting the different poets, um, He's free to do that, and I think you're free to do that. So what you need to do sometimes in a certain context, especially if you're in a context where somebody's thinking about killing a child, I have no qualms uh, being a certain level pragmatic, and what communicates them in that context. And if speaking about heartbeats and speaking about uh, you know what's going on with the child and the child feels pain and all that sort of stuff, um, and depending on how you want to go about it and what you think is persuasive to them, I'm open to the idea of just being like, yeah, go ahead and do that, which is at least in that context persuasive. And I don't think you're inherently compromising the Bible, inherently compromising the authority of Jesus by stepping back and seeking to be persuasive of other men. And that's why I even say the Apostle Paul, and obviously this deals with the law, but he says, I become all things to all men that I might win some to Christ. Obviously, that's not a wholesale rejection um, of the law because he ends up saying, but I'm not, you know, I'm under the law of Christ. So we are still under the authority of Jesus Christ. We're preaching and teaching on the authority of Jesus Christ. Um, but what does it look like to come along and serve? And I think oftentimes in our evangelism, uh, we miss that aspect. But the very nature of the gospel is how God has come and served us. And so we can go into a context and serve other people. So I think that's pretty vital and pretty important. So if someone was to ask me, um, you know, do we just show up to an abortion clinic or just show up to campus and preach uh, just Bible verses, uh, my answer is no. Uh, I think if you read Acts chapter 17, Paul's not just quoting Bible verses, but he's being thoroughly biblical. 
And so because this is God's world, we can grab anything in the world and it's authoritative when it's true because it's God's truth and we can springboard from that to the gospel. Uh, so that'd be one thing I wanted to brush on tonight. And then the other uh, question, I've been meaning to actually email this gentleman, um, but he emailed me asking this. After growing up with a pretty darn good agnostic parents who gave me pretty darn good agnostic childhood, I finally came to Christ two years ago at the age of 36. I had a lot of questions growing up, which were usually answered by unbelievers in the public school system. I feel I had a typical faith journey, atheism, agnosticism, deism, and finally Christ. I wonder, will I ever uproot what I consider to be deeply embedded materialist presuppositions inherited from the first half of my life? I do recognize that uh, my habit of repentance and prayer when I experience these thoughts has brought me closer to God, but I was curious to your thoughts about the presuppositions. And this is actually a fantastic question, and everything about it's humble. Everything about that question is a proper Christian question. And so um, the first thing this individual needs to do is thank God that um, he's sitting there and he's working through his thoughts and realizing, yeah, I, a lot of my ideas are not thoroughly Christian. And you look at the early letters of what's going on between Jews and Gentiles in the church, even when Paul had to oppose Peter to his face, Peter was having a tough time getting rid of his Jewish presuppositions. So they weren't materialists, uh, but they were Jewish, and he was having a tough time ap applying the gospel uh, to a myriad of situations. If you go and read the book of Hebrews, you have a bunch of people that are being tempted to return uh, to Judaism. So while not materialistic presuppositions, they were Jewish presuppositions, and they're having difficulty working through what that meant for the Messiah to have come. The same thing happens in 1 Corinthians where you have uh, people come from a pagan background who deny the resurrection, and Paul had to work through the resurrection with them. They were uniting themselves to temple prostitutes, and Paul had to say, didn't you know that your body belongs to the Lord? And so if you are honest, and I'm honest, and we sit down and we read all the letters of the New Testament, when Paul's writing the Romans, Jews and Gentiles are split over what? Um, over their cultures, who they are, what they're doing, how they live. Uh, they're split on those things. And so Paul has to work through their presuppositions of how they're approaching one another, how they think of one another. And so at the end of, uh, or at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul says, therefore offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holding acceptable to the Lord. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, Two, he says, just as you receive Christ as the Lord, so now walk in him. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul lays out, set your mind on things that are above. So here's the point uh, to the question, is no, I don't think in any perfect sense in this age, all of your materialist presuppositions will be gone. In one sense, definitively speaking, when you were baptized in the Christ, you became a brand new man. You died to all the materialism. You died to all of your paganism. You died even to Judaism. If you were a, a Jew in the first century, you were dying to Judaism, and you're dying to all those presuppositions. Uh, so definitively, that happened. So when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, they were definitively free from Pharaoh's power. Yet here they are in the desert, and they're tempted to return. And they're tempted to return uh, because all those presuppositions of the, even in their context, the good life, they'd rather be slaves and be able to eat leeks and cucumbers and all that sort of stuff rather than wandering around in the desert. And so there's a certain sense in which you and I are wandering around the desert uh, between uh, the new heavens and new earth, between the resurrection of Christ and his second advent. And between those two worlds, we are in principle in the new heavens and new earth but practically speaking, uh, we're still leaving the old world behind and coming into new creation. So if you've been a believer for two years, um, you know, uh, think of the long haul or post-mill. So think of 10 years out from now, your assumptions will be radically reorganized. They'll never be perfect in this age, uh, but those assumptions will be chiseled away. And the way that they're chiseled away is that you are faithfully going to church, 
listening to the word preached, and participating in the Lord's Supper. And so when you eat bread and you drink wine, you realize that the Lord is meeting with you, and the Lord is instructing you, and you kind of have an edible gospel. And when you're baptized, the Lord met with you in water. And so there is a, in one sense, a thoroughgoing materialism that you're still holding to, uh, but not in the straight-up philosophical uh, that all there is the material world. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, you know that not all that there is is the material world. The Holy Spirit has worked upon you and has subjectively witnessed to you uh, that Jesus is, in fact, uh, the Son of God. So when it comes to you in this age, you will never be, you will never perfectly eradicate your presuppositions. Van Til would talk about it in, in two ways, uh, Cornelius Van Til. Van Til would say in one breath that the in principle, the unbeliever, is against Jesus at every single point. Um, so if you believe in total depravity, you believe that every part of man has been affected by the fall and is therefore tainted with sin. That doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could possibly be. It simply means that every part of man has been affected by the fall and is at odds with God. Um, but not every unbeliever that you meet is as, as, as bad as he could possibly be. So in principle, he's dead in his sins and transgressions, but even if you read Romans 1, there is a progressive aspect to a culture being handed over to sin. And so just as there's a progressive aspect of man being handed over to sin, so there's a progressive aspect to man coming into obedience to Christ. So we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holding acceptable to the Lord, and we reckon ourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ, and we need to renew our mind. And we renew our mind by sharing uh, stories of faith with one another, talking about the Bible with one another. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So um, I honestly, uh, the very fact you're asking that question, I know it sounds maybe pastorally cliche, um, but I would say you uh, I would not be anxious about it in one sense. Uh, that the the very fact that you're two years old, think of it also as maybe as the terrible twos, if you want to. Um, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have fits and spurts as a Christian. There gonna be certain times where you're gonna be uh, really excited about Jesus and you love everything about it, and you're like, man, I'll never be able to sin again, and blah blah blah. Then you'll come crashing down to reality, be like, oh man, have I made any progress at all in the past five years, six years, seven years, ten years? And the reality of it is, you are growing. And so if you're married. Um, even think of any relationship you've ever had. Um, there are times where you're like, yep, this is going well. There are other times where you're like, man, I'm not, not that great of a husband or whatever it may be. So uh, I would not be discouraged um, that you still have creeping thoughts. And even just recognizing that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, no temptation ceases you except that which is common to man. And those things are idolatry, which are going to be your materialistic presuppositions, uh, sexual morality, and grumbling. I believe he lists one more thing, but those, those three uh, stand out to me right now. So uh, I would not sweat it. And I would just continue to look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, and you know you are. You're. I'm not saying this to put you down, but you're a babe in Christ, and crave pure spiritual milk, and crave obedience to Jesus, and crave those things, and you'll find that some of your presuppositions over time uh, have suddenly dissipated and they're gone. And so a few years ago, I took up running. Well, a few years ago, about 12 years ago, I took up running, and in the first few times out, it was just like, oh man, I'm this is awful. I'd have to walk up this one hill in the park I'd run in, and then a few weeks later, I just kind of realized, man, I'm able to run the whole park, and then I'm able to run the whole park twice. And there was growth in that, and it took a little bit of time. And you know, there were first few weeks there, you're like, man, I'm not getting anywhere. But eventually, you're just like, wow, I've made a lot of progress. So uh, I want to encourage you in that, that uh, those things will never be completely decimated in this age. They're always going to be creeping up. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil against you, and that's never eradicated. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill once said, take it from me, an old man. Uh, there's, uh, there's no, oh man, uh, this side of heaven. Basically, there's no finality to the Christian life this side of heaven, is what he says, and I think that's very true. There's no finality to it. So you're always wrestling against the world, the flesh, and the devil in this age. And the way we wrestle against it... Uh, brings us into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ.
So the Christian position is pretty straightforward, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, died, was buried, was raised up on the third day, and that in this crucifixion, God was in fact reconciling the world to himself. Now the question quickly becomes was, is this an historical fact? And I would say there are numerous reasons to believe that it is an historical fact. Uh, the, the first reason uh, for believing the crucifixion of Jesus is it's um, attested in multiple sources, including the Gospels. Again, my claim a couple weeks ago, which I think is uh, pretty well supported, is that the Gospels are actually an early document, not a late document, and we'd have to show, uh, at least even if you don't accept all the details of uh, the Gospels, um, I was actually listening to some atheists the other day uh, discuss it, uh, who basically argued for, yes, the, the Gospels, they're not historical in the sense that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah and all the prophecies are true, um, but they believe that it's historical in the sense that the Bible was put together by a bunch of Jews who thought Jesus was the Messiah and that they had to go searching through the Old Testament to justify that Jesus was in fact crucified. And because he was crucified, they had to go searching through the Old Testament to find reasons for it. So they end up applying things like Isaiah 53, uh, even though it has nothing to do with a crucified Messiah and things like that. So that's at least interesting. So it, obviously it's going to have a different presupposition than what we have. But here you have some atheists saying, yep, uh, when you read the gospel accounts, it is Christians searching the Old Testament and trying to take real historical events and patchwork the Jewish Messiah together because he obviously did not fulfill what it meant to be a Jewish Messiah, so they had a patchwork Old Testament text to get there. So I think that's pretty fascinating and kind of interesting, something to kind of keep in your pocket, um, that, that strand of thought for the unbeliever. Um, but not only that, you have uh, it's mentioned in Josephus, it's also mentioned in Tacitus. And so there's a lot of debate um, around uh, the work of... Um, Josephus, because uh, it was probably most definitely amended by some Christians. Uh, but even when you take your more liberal scholars that really button up and tighten up the um, the works that we have from Josephus, one of the things that they end up uh, basically articulating um, is this. And this is by a guy named John Meyer, who in 1991, um, after combing through and trying to go back to what he thought the original text actually said, he does include this fact as being originally from Josephus. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. So there you have a very explicit reference by Josephus outside of the New Testament canon uh, regarding uh, the death of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. And in a similar fashion, uh, Tacitus, um, says this. Uh, their names, referring to the Christians, comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. And so again, outside the New Testament, again, you have to realize how rare it is that there would be a marginal Jew referenced by anybody in the ancient world. Um, so you have four gospels that people took up to write about him, which all included his death, his burial, his resurrection, at least his death and his burial, um, as well as you have Tacitus and Josephus. Uh, there are some other sources, but you could argue that they're derived from Christians more so than an historical account of what has actually happened. So one reason to believe it, it's uh, well attested in the ancient world from the four gospels to other works, including even early Christian works. And it would just be begging the question to say, well, we can't count the gospels. Why can't you count that as being some aspect of of uh, capturing historical truth. Um, should we question whether or not there was a Pontius Pilate or a Herod and all those sorts of things uh, because that's included in the gospel? No, you don't do that. Um, you count it. And obviously there are things like, you know, that the unbeliever can consider like the miraculous that they won't include, uh, but that's a separate issue. Um, but then kind of another reason to believe it is that it's closely intertwined um, with early dates. So the Apostle Paul writing within 20 years of the death of Jesus 
um, or actually talk about his crucifixion. Uh, so some early writings were talking about it. Again, even the Gospels could possibly be earlier than that. So another reason uh, to accept the idea that the Gospels or that the crucifixion is a real historical fact is the reality that it's um, attested to at a pretty early date shortly after it happened. And one of the other things uh, that's important in, in this discussion is even in our apologetic with uh, Muslims, um, the, the Muslim does not believe, the Quran teaches uh, that Jesus was not crucified, but someone who looked like him was substituted in his place. And so if we have you know, historical testimony uh, that Jesus was in fact crucified, and even in our interaction with Muslims, so it's impo- or obviously central to our whole philosophy, but it's important to our apologetic to the unbeliever. It's also important to the apologetic to the um, Muslim as well, that we want to point out, no, the historical account is that Jesus was in fact crucified. Now, obviously, the Muslim says someone who looks like him uh, was substituted in his place, so it wasn't really Jesus. And so then we can get to the issue of whether or not Allah deceives people in that sense, that he made everybody there think that Jesus was crucified, even though that he wasn't, and whether or not you could trust a God who deceived everybody there in the way that they're using it. So we'd have to tease out uh, those things a bit more. But even part of the the importance of this discussion is it it covers two things. It covers the unbeliever. It wants to say, question, be skeptical whether or not Jesus Christ, uh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth existed, whether he died. And then also, uh, with respect to Muslims, we want to be able to point out the fact that um, Jesus was, in fact, crucified, not only according to the Injil or the Gospels, uh, but also the ancient world testifies uh, to the fact of this crucifixion. And their idea that it was someone who was substituted in his place um, has no historical bearing in the first century. Um, There's no account of this idea that it was actually somebody substituted in his place for all the things that it could have been. Um, as you try to reconstruct a scene, I don't think that fits out either. And um, this is from N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. And I realize a lot of people don't like N.T. Wright. I think I may have mentioned him in the, before. Um, I appreciate there, When he's good, he's good. When he's bad, he's bad. So I'll just say that. So I enjoy reading him. There are a lot of people I enjoy who I think go really off the rails, um, but they're stimulating. Um, but here's uh, this is from his Resurrection of the Son of God. And I think this is uh, really gets... Uh, to it. He says, the argument at this point proceeds in three stages. Early Christianity was thoroughly messianic, shaping itself around the belief that Jesus was God's Messiah, Israel's Messiah. But messiahship in Judaism, such as it was, never envisaged someone doing the sort of things Jesus had done, let alone suffering the fate he suffered. The historian, this is three, the historian must therefore ask why the early Christians made this claim about Jesus and why they reordered their lives accordingly. Jewish beliefs about a coming Messiah and about the deeds such a figure would be expected to accomplish came in various shapes and sizes, but they did not include a shameful death, which left the Roman Empire celebrating its victory. And and that's the historical reality that everybody has to address, that why would a bunch of Jews begin to worship and serve a crucified Messiah. And the most reasonable explanation, I think so far at this point, is obviously Jesus really existed. He really was crucified. And the early church understood that as not only being for the sins of the world, but three days later uh, that he was resurrected. And we're going to get into a little more of that historical aspect um, next week regarding why you should believe also historically uh, that he really rose from the dead. But you can kind of see where we're heading. Uh, the sheer embarrassment of a crucified Messiah is no real reason to, or is not really much of a reason in the first century to get excited about a crucified Messiah. Uh, but it was the resurrection uh, that transformed the world and ended up overturning uh, the Roman Empire within three centuries. And so, you know, that's our, that's our basic story. You've got plenty of good reasons uh, to believe uh, the Gospels, and you have very real, cold, historical facts 
uh, that are pointing in that way. And I understand all the little nuance people want. Uh, but what we want to do is ask people to explain this. Why, why do you think a bunch of Jews would start serving a crucified Messiah if it's so shameful as it was in the first century? And even the Apostle Paul says, a preaching of the cross is foolishness. The Jews demand signs and wonders. Greeks demand wisdom. But we we preach Christ crucified. He knew what he was saying was on the outside, and he thought what he was preaching, at the very least, was a real historical event, and that's why he talks about Peter. That's why he talks about James, the brother of Jesus. All this stuff in the New Testament is thoroughly, thoroughly grounded in dirt and time and space uh, because the creator became a man. So that's uh, episode 16. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me at uh, Campus Evangel on the Twitter, or you can email me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com. And Lord willing, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about evangelism. Had a really kind of wild day today. Got hit with a bullhorn as well as the bullhorn was being yelled in my ear. And I pushed the bullhorn down, and then I was... uh, a little bit later, read my Miranda rights. So, uh, so we'll get into that uh, a little bit next week, uh, depending on what happens the rest of the week. So, the Lord bless you, keep you, and we'll talk to you. Then. Went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well.